0: Welcome to the JMD podcast with me, James Nurse. If you've ever found yourself wistfully gazing at a pile of unread journals or refusing to shut down the 100 chrome tabs of articles you want to read, then this may be the podcast for you. In fortnightly episodes, I invite authors from the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease to discuss recent publications, and you can then listen to their thoughts as you drive to work, go for a walk, or maybe even just tackle the ironing. There are close to 100 episodes from the last two and a half years, and alongside them is his latest episode exploring the diagnosis and management of glutaric aciduria type 1. Now, there's something comforting about a well crafted guideline, and given that these are some of our most well read papers, I can't be alone in thinking that. We've recently published the third revision of the guideline for the diagnosis and management of glutaric aciduria type 1 which is the perfect excuse to talk about the condition, especially because aside from a wonderful short cast exploring the Irish experience with this condition, we haven't mentioned GA1 in the main podcast yet. So to take me through the guideline, I'm delighted to welcome the first named author, Dr. Nicholas Boy of the Division of Neuropediatrics and Metabolic Medicine in Heidelberg. Nicolas, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Now, as I mentioned, we haven't discussed GA1 before. So could I ask you perhaps for the, the cliff notes? What's happening inside the body and how does that manifest in patients?
1: Well, the disease, glutaric Aciduria type one, is caused by an inherited deficiency of, of an enzyme, glutaric dehydrogenase Dehydrogenase, located in the lysine metabolism. And it's basically converting two important metabolites within the lysine metabolism. The deficiency of the enzyme results in an accumulation of specific metabolites, such as glutaral-CoA, which is converted into glutaral carnitin, which is non-toxic that we use for newborn screening, but on the other side, also converted into organic acids named glutaric acid and 3-hydroxyglutaric acid. And these two acids accumulate within all body fluids, but especially within the brain, but also other organs, and they cause the neurological pathology of the disease. We know that most patients that are not treated develop a very severe neurological injury localized in the basal ganglia, specifically the putamen, so a very, very important region within the CNS for coordinating movements and motor development and motor function. And mostly within the first three years of life, these patients suffer from acute crises, so acute stridal injury, resulting in complete destruction of the basal ganglia, resulting in a predominantly dystonic movement disorder, later on other movement disorders. And these movement disorders result in severely increased morbidity, a lot of secondary associated problems in these patients, and also increased mortality. Beside this acute manifestation, there are also more insidious manifestations, so patients without an acute crisis event, and they develop a continuous and very chronic dystonic movement disorder, which is a little bit less severe, and it's also milder from the MRI images, but it's also something that is very relevant because both the acute and the insidious onset of the movement disorder have a very high prognostic and, of course, clinical impact for the patients because it's irreversible And these movement disorders, they may change a little bit from the severity, but will always stay. Mostly it is a very stable disease. So the huge aim of all these treatment and guideline developments that we have initiated over 15 years ago is to prevent these crises, to prevent stridal injury in these patients. And that is something that is very, very important. The treatment of the disease has been developed over the last three decades, and we have a very effective treatment nowadays. So the disease, I think, for the right reason, is included in the very, very constantly growing number of newborn screening panels within whole Europe. Uh, so nowadays we have 24 countries in Europe that screened for GA1. And at the end of the 90s, it was not included in any panels. So I think that is a huge effort. We have very good evidence that an early detection of the patients and an early start of the treatment really results in improved outcomes. So I think that is why you can also name GA1 like a model disease for newborn screening, very similar to PKU, because we really know that this intervention of newborn screening facilitating early treatment is, is so important for the patients.
0: Thank you, It's very succinctly put. Uh, as you mentioned there, you know, we've seen guidelines over the last 15 years. This is the third revision published since 2007. How did this particular revision come about?
1: Well, as you said, it's the third revision. The initial version was published in 2007, and then there was the first revision in 2011, the second in 2016. And we started the plannings and all the preparations for the third revision in, in 2020. So the first thing that you need is, of course, a guideline group. So we reached out to all the professional medical societies that are important in the healthcare procedure of managing a GA1 patient. So from the... The Association for Pediatrics and Child Neurology and also the Dietitians and the Neuroradiology and so on. So we contacted 13 professional societies and each of them identified an official representative. We also had a neutral moderation. And then the second thing you need is you have to identify relevant key questions according to the PICO procedure. And of course, if you do a revision, you also need to check and to analyze the previous recommendations. And then you will end up in a discussion of relevant old and new key questions. And then based on a systematic literature evaluation, you can evaluate each of these key questions, and then you end up in a specific recommendation. You have to discuss the formulation, you have discussed the grading of the recommendation. This is something that has been conducted during the guideline meetings. We had one meeting in presence, we had four virtual meetings, and the very new development, I think, within guideline methodology in general is that back in the days, recommendations and guidelines were only based on evidence Itself and nothing else. That was the approach that was also recommended in the SIGN methodology. But some years ago, the methodology was renewed and also equipped with a new tool called the GRADE methodology. So, a new system and approach to guideline methodology that enabled a very transparent approach, like the outcome parameters really defined by clinicians and also the patient representatives. And especially the new development was that recommendations not only included the level of evidence, of course, the level of evidence is very important and is still the base for a recommendation but also we evaluate other important criteria for each and every recommendation for example how consistent evidence is or how the clinical relevance is how the benefits and harms are balanced for the patients also um, legal and economic considerations and the perspective of the individuals so the inclusion of the patient supporting groups are very important and also the general practicability during the average day okay and uh, this is something that was included into this grade system. And I think especially for rare diseases where you often have the problem that the studies that you have to use have a very small sample size that would result in a low quality of evidence for these guidelines. It is a huge help that we can integrate all these new criterias and do like a, integrative recommendation that is considering all these different criterias. And then you can change the grade of a recommendation according to all these criterias. For example, if you have recommendation that the guideline group assesses the importance and clinical relevance as very, very strong, but the evidence, for example, is low, you can still end up in a recommendation with a specific strength that was not possible before. So I think this grade development was very, very important for rare disease guidelines, and I think it will help also the upcoming revisions, uh, definitely.
0: Let's not get ahead of ourselves talking about upcoming revisions just yet, but um, it sounds like it's got a change in the process. How much actually changed from the 2016 guideline?
1: Well, as I said, the first thing that you do is you check the previous recommendations, if they have changed or if they even have proven invalid with new research coming on. But this to the best of our knowledge was not the case. So all the previous recommendations were still valid, um, but of course we modified them and we developed new recommendations also. So there's a bunch of six completely new recommendations that have been integrated into the guideline. One former statement, so a little bit more weak statement that you put into a guideline was changed to a recommendation. So something that is practice guiding as a recommendation should be. So that is what was new in the, the third revision. I think very specifically, the evidence for treatment safety, for treatment efficacy was increasing during the last five or six years. Also, there was more data coming on abnormalities and dynamic changes within the brain that is not located in the basal ganglia, as I was introducing in the beginning. But we have a huge variety of abnormalities that develop outside of the striatal structures in the brain, and they are called extra-striatal abnormalities. And there's increasing evidence that these abnormalities really are very predominant in most patients, and they show a very interesting dynamic, but still the relevance is unclear. And there was a lot of studies highlighting that. But also the impact of the two biochemical phenotypes that are known in GA1, we have high excretus and low excretus. So patients with very high concentrations of glutaric acids, patients with low or even normal concentration of glutaric acid. And back in the days, the initial outcome studies or cross-sectional studies worldwide showed that high and low excretors have a similar risk for developing these stridal injury. But regarding these extra stridal abnormalities, the high excretors show an increased risk compared to the low excreting phenotype. We also see differences in uh, anthropometric development, in cognitive development. So it's interesting how yeah these biochemical groups seem to differ. And that was something that is new and was implemented into the guidelines. We also focused on kidney function. So there were new data on the kidney function, something that was observed as an extra neurological manifestation only some years ago. So closely before the second revision, the first data came out and there was new data on that also. So I think that was the main changes in the third revision compared to the second revision.
0: So what can we say clinical teams should and perhaps shouldn't do when looking for managing GA1? And I appreciate it. it's a huge topic, so kind of headlines only really.
1: Yeah, sure. I think it's very important if the medical and healthcare system has the facilities for that to include the disease in the newborn screening program, because we have such huge evidence that early diagnosis is so important for outcome. On the other side, in countries or situations where you maybe don't have a newborn screening result or you don't have a newborn screening program at all. If you have suggestive clinical signs, for example, an unexplained acute onset movement disorder or even a macrocephaly, or if you have specific MRI features, which is the frontotemporal hypoplasia, which is very characteristic. But also some other abnormalities if you find these then it is indicated to to look for ga1 and do a specific biochemical workup including the organic acid quantification especially in urine so i think that is also really important i think if you have a a ga1 patient you have diagnosed them with newborn screening it is very very strongly recommended and very important to start low lysine diet, which is the effective treatment for the disease, to start carnitin supplementation, also to supplement your patient with an amino acid supplement, which is lysine-free and arginine-fortified. This is very, very important. And then manage the patient in a specialized metabolic center that can offer all the subspecialties that are important for managing a disease like that and organizing the clinical follow-ups, of course, that is something that absolutely should be done. And the content of the follow-ups are clearly stated and recommended in the guidelines. So I think that is something that is really important for all the clinicians. And if you, for example, work in a smaller hospital, not focusing on metabolic diseases, and then if you will be confronted with a GA1 patient in the emergency department coming with a febrile infection, It is really important to start the emergency treatment. Most patients have emergency cards with them or contact the metabolic center and then immediately start the metabolic emergency treatment without any delay because we have learned that the emergency treatment in this disease is the most important outcome parameter. So the start of the treatment in emergency situations is very important. So that should be something that is on the mind of, of every pediatrician working in any kind of hospital.
0: I'm glad you made that last point there. As a general pediatrician myself, I'm always interested in in some of the aspects that fall outside the specialist centers. And um, something that I've noticed looking at the paper, I think recommendation three talks about follow up of children with uh, SDH in the context of GA1. Uh, We see this in child protection cases where sometimes children with subdurals, the request is made to exclude GA1. Is a negative newborn screen enough or should more be done? Or does this really rather depend on how compelling the neuroradiology findings are?
1: Well, um, there was one study that was published just one or two years ago that was evaluating this question. And we have found that the subdural hematoma in GA1 occurs mostly between the age of three to four months and 24 months, so within the first two years of life. That is also the age spectrum that you find in the literature. All the patients that we have identified suffering from subdural hematoma are high excretors, so patients with significantly increased uh, concentration of glutaric acid in urine. Most of these patients, interestingly, develop subdural hematoma. hematoma without any clinical symptoms, so they are detected by regular follow-up investigations. And these subdural hematoma, they tend to be unilateral, they tend to be resort within the follow-ups, and they do not have any clinical impact to the patient. They occur in any kind of clinical phenotype, so in the asymptomatic patients, but also in patients with movement disorders. And on the other side, you have these patients suffering from minor head trauma and then developing like severe mass bleeding and septoral hematomas really with the requirement of neurosurgical intervention. So these are the two groups of SDH and GA1. But we have found all the patients that develop an SDH, regardless if it was an incidental finding or an accident associated finding, they showed the characteristic features of a high excreting GA1 phenotype. So frontotemporal hyperplasia, enlarged external CSF spaces, and also other more subtle abnormalities within the brain. That was very characteristic. And this is also something that was published some years ago by a Dutch group. So that is as specific as you can actually associate it at the moment, so all the patients with a subdural hematoma had characteristic additional extra striatal abnormalities, which on the other side means that if you have a patient with a subdural hematoma, and this patient does not suffer from G1 which is the case in cases of child protection, as you have mentioned, and we also get confronted with this question very, very frequently. In these patients, you should check for these extra stridal abnormalities. You can also reach out for experienced neuroradiologists. We are happy to provide expertise for that, for example, can send us the images, and then you can assess if this would really be a probable explanation. On the other side, we don't have any studies that systematically for example, analyzed a huge group of patients analyzed in child protection uh, situations and then screen how many of these patients actually suffer from g one that would be an interesting study but so far this study is not available so we can we can only state that if you have a patient that does not have g one but is not um, showing these additional very characteristic abnormalities that I have mentioned, it is actually not indicated to screen for GA1. That is the data at the moment.
0: And of, of course, with the prevalence of GA1 screening, as you've mentioned now in many European countries, even those of us who've now left Europe but are still European, we like to think, if this is in high excretis, we should have seen a positive screen in these children anyway.
1: Absolutely, because the newborn screening has a sensitivity of 100% for high excretors. So we find all the high excretors, and these are the ones that develop the subdural hematoma as long as we know. I mean, still the patient and sample sizes in these studies is, is low. So we cannot exclude that also lower excretus may develop SDH, but it's not reported so far in any patient. On the other side, the sensitivity of the newborn screening for low excretors is lower. It even can miss a lower excreter, So that was also the case in several patients, unfortunately. But still, as I said, the lower excreters, as far as we know, we, we just don't know if they have an increased risk at all. But the high excreters who show the significant risk They should all be found by newborn screening. But of course, as in any other disease, if you have a suggestive clinical presentation and if you have a patient with an unexplained huge subteral hematoma and also characteristic abnormalities on MRI, as I have explained, it is also important to screen for GA1. Uh, The newborn screening result may have been normal because it's always possible that there was any kind of, I don't know, technical problems or the patient was not the patient that it was supposed to be according to the results or something. I mean, all this may happen in a newborn screening program.
0: I'm glad we're talking about screening because you identified a number of areas where more research is required. And recommendation four was an interesting one. I mean, to me anyway, as it discusses positive screens with negative diagnostics and maternal GA1. Can you tell me a bit more about that?
1: Sure. So these mothers were found after a positive newborn screening result of their children. And then, of course, the children were suspected for GA1, but all the confirmational diagnostics were negative. And then, actually, the mothers have been evaluated and assessed for GA1. And we know several cases of which mothers have been identified with GA1 following a procedure like that. The interesting thing is that most of these mothers did not develop any symptoms. They are part of a group called the late onset or the lately diagnosed patients. So patients that show no symptoms at all, as most of these mothers. Other late onset patients show very unspecific uh, symptoms like headache or polyneuropathy or dementia or epilepsy or something in older patients but for specific reasons that we do not really know. They did not suffer from any uh, kind of stridal injury untreated within the first years of life. So most of these mothers of these maternal g one patients, they are clinically asymptomatic or they show unspecific signs. And still, we do not know exactly what is the impact of Dietary treatment after the age of six years, it is still a lot of open questions, even in the third revision of the guideline. Um, We know that the effect of dietary treatment in the first six years of life is very, very strong, and the impact on outcome is very significant, But After the age of six years and then up to adulthood, we do not know exactly what the impact of treatment is, but we know that there is a bunch of reasons to continue treatment in these age groups because we do not know what the clinical long-term of the disease is. We talked about extra stridal abnormalities that are progredient with time and they may end up in a clinical relevance for the patient. We know that the kidney disease is starting in this age group of six years and then maybe continuing to Progress. So there's a lot of reasons to to continue the lysine restriction in these patients, and this is of course also something that is valid for a maternal GA1 patient that is otherwise not showing any symptoms. So if you identify a patient, you can talk about GA1. You can recommend the start of the treatment but on the other side it is also important to state that the efficacy of the treatment is much less well understood than the efficacy of the treatment in in a young child and this is something that is important for these patients or these individuals because I mean if they do not show any symptoms you cannot term them as a patient But this is something that you discuss in this individual situation. And that's also why this recommendation is something that was graded as a grade zero or a recommendation for research, because we still need more research data and more studies on efficacy of treatment in these later ages, adolescence and adulthood.
0: I mean, that's one hell of a sort of false positive, isn't it? Think your baby might have something and it turns out you have it. Absolutely. I mean, I may have misunderstood this, but I think um, arginine supplementation was quite common in J. one but it seems it's a new recommendation that maybe it's not necessary. Is, is that right? Or am I- um,
1: well, yes and no. Just a quick explanation for arginine. Arginine is a semi-essential amino acid in contrast to, to lysine. And both lysine and arginine use the same CAT1 transporter across the blood-brain barrier So in theory and in practice, this competitive mechanism can be exploited for dietary treatment. And the data from the mouse model actually show that treatment based on lysine restriction is the most effective treatment regarding decrease of metabolite concentration, so decrease of glutaric acid and 3-hydroxyglutaric acid. If you then additionally add arginine, you need very, very high doses, so supraphysiologic doses of arginine to end up in an additional biochemical effect of metabolite decrease. So that was the one thing that was important to see from the from the mouse models. but patients with j1 receive arginine frequently because they all of course have an arginine intake within the natural protein within their uh, low lysine diet But also, amino acid supplements, as I said in the beginning, are lysine-free, they are tryptophan-reduced, and they are also arginine-fortified, which is something that is very, very important. And all the studies using these treatment regimes, they showed that if you treat your patient with a low-lysine diet with the supplementation of these arginine-containing amino acids, then the outcome of these patients is very, very promising. On the other side, it was debated if the arginine content would play a role, so if it makes a difference for the patient if he receives more or less arginine during a specific period of time during development. But we have a very good prospective study showing that the amount of arginine within the amino acid during the first year may be different in patients, but still, if they receive arginine at the same level in the next years, the neurologic outcome at the end is is absolutely the same. So what we can state for this is, yes, GA1 patients all should receive arginine and they all do receive arginine, but it is sufficient that they receive the arginine within the low lysine diet and also receiving the arginine fortified lysine free amino acid. And in some centers and hospitals, it is discussed whether an additional oral L-arginine supplementation, such as, for example, in urea cycle defects, would have a benefit for the patients. But for that, we do not have any evidence that this is the case. So this additional use of arginine as an oral supplementation or in an emergency situation as an IV infusion is not indicated. There's no evidence that this is beneficial for the patients. So this is not necessary.
0: So don't change what you're doing, but don't give any more than you are.
1: Exactly. Fine.
0: So I mean, this is very much still a management guideline based on diet supplementation, as you mentioned, and danger avoidance or managing these emergency episodes. Can we hope for any new therapies by the time the fourth revision comes around?
1: Well, it is something that is a very interesting point. At the moment, I do not know of any enzyme replacement or gene therapy studies, but lysine metabolism is a very complex thing and it's still not fully understood to this day. And the GCDH enzyme is an enzyme that is located and connected to a lot of other enzymatic reactions. And some years ago, some studies tried to identify new targets, new enzyme targets within the lysine metabolism and specifically upstream of the go one enzyme to kind of change the disease into another disease, which may have a milder clinical phenotype. And this was specifically tried for the DHDKD1 enzyme causing oxoadipic aciduria, which is a disease that has a much milder phenotype than GA1. So there was one study that tried to, to genetically block these enzymes and then to evaluate if a GA1 mouse can be rescued by this block upstream of the GA1 enzyme. But uh, unfortunately, there was no rescue of the phenotype. So the single block of this upstream enzyme of the GA1 enzyme is not sufficient to rescue the phenotype. So we need more complex approaches, other approaches, new targets, but there are studies going on focusing on other targets within the lysine metabolism. And I'm sure that we will learn a lot on that during the next years, definitely.
0: Thank you for that. So it's an excellent guideline. There's some really useful summaries of both sort of inpatient and outpatient emergency treatment, as well as details on um, maintenance therapy, clinical and laboratory monitoring. So I'd encourage the listeners to have a read. Is there anything you wanted to add?
1: Yeah, I I definitely would like to thank. That's the most important thing to express my gratefulness. First of all, of course, to the guideline group, because I had really the pleasure to work with very experienced uh, experts 23 experts of uh, the the professional societies we had support by various organizations such as the APS which is the the national society for inborn errors of metabolism in germany but also the association for pediatrics in in germany then we had support by, of course, the Medical Association in Germany of all medical societies, which was named AWMF. They were supporting us with methodological and logistic supports. In the end we were ending up in a huge manuscript that was evaluated by external experts that i'm very grateful for it was evaluated by the eimd consortium which is the european registry for intoxication type metabolic diseases that is analyzing and doing a lot of research in organic acidurias so it's a very huge and long standardized process and a lot of players that are important, and I'm very grateful that we could end up in a work that is finalized, that is available for patients and families. And I think that's the most important thing. I mean, we all do this guideline work to improve management, to improve outcome, to improve the life of affected individuals. And that's something that is, is great to work for. And I would like to thank, of course, also the, the listeners of the podcast. And I hope that the guideline will be useful and helpful for you in your clinical work.
0: I know it's already been very highly read from looking through our social media activity. So if you haven't yet read the guideline and you want to go and have a look, please click the link in the podcast description or go to the general web pages and search for a glutaric acid urea guideline. Nicholas, thank you again for making time for me today.
1: Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. (laughs)